Paul is, um, in chapters, chapters 3, 1 through 4, Paul is laying, and if you follow what I had written, Paul is laying out the framework for a Christian world in life view. And he says, um, if you've been raised with Christ, or since you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, set your minds on the things that are above. We have already covered that. And then verse 3 and verse 4, 4, you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So I wrote up on the board here sort of a summary of what he is really arguing. It's a nice, pithy, short way to remember what I think Paul is suggesting, indeed arguing here. One, the believer should look upward to Christ's rule. Verses 1 and 2. Since you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on the things that are above, not on things of the earth. And look forward to his return. You're hidden with Christ in God. When Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So the believer, if you... Think of it this way, and the reason I like this is it gives you two words. You'll always remember, upward and forward. Got it? Yes. <laughs> so that's your thought paper for next week. Explain in detail using at least five New Testament references for each what the upward, upward look involves. And then five New Testament references on the forward look. You should be able to do that. Do you understand that? Do you understand that sentence? Yes. Upward look, forward look? Yes. Daniel, got it? Yeah. Okay. Let's look at the forward look, because we did not deal with that last week. For you have died. Now, did you see what he's done in verse 1? You have been raised. Verse 3, you've died. So he's reversing the chronological order, but what is he summarizing for us? Our position. This is who we are. In Romans chapter 6, Paul says it's quite an extensive treatment of this. When the Father looks at you, he sees you as dead, buried, resurrected with his Son. Because Jesus did that in your place. It's a substitutionary uh, uh, death burial and resurrection. And so we therefore are identified with Christ. We therefore are in Christ. We therefore are in in the eyes of the Father. We are dead, buried, and resurrected with the Son. That's our position. Now that, I'm really hoping that is not new truth to you, but does that make sense? If that doesn't make sense to you, I need to know about that, because that's the linchpin of this. You don't believe what he just said, then his application of this is meaningless to you. But if you understand it, your position is, in the Father's eyes, you are dead, buried, and resurrected with the Son, because your Son did that for you in in your place. You're identified with him. And so because that's true, I love verse 3. Your life is hidden with Christ in God. Hidden. Man, that is a statement of our safety. That is a statement of our security in Christ. Because our position is true, we're dead, buried, and resurrected with Christ. Therefore, our position is secure. We're in a safe place. 
This is one of the great passages on assurance of your salvation. And if you don't understand what that means, you're never going to grow. If you don't have assurance of your position and who you are and what Christ has done for you, when you put your faith in, if you don't have that clear, you will have no assurance and you'll never grow. Back in Pennsylvania, I remember this is a long time ago, decades ago. I was still in ministry back there. But anyway, a guy came up to me and he said, I, last night I got saved for the 39th time. <laughs> And I said, okay, what am I going to do with this? And I asked him to explain what he meant. Well, he, he, I had gotten to know him because I had been involved in the prison ministry in Lehigh County Prison. But anyway, that's how I got to know him. And he was, he was, he was just one of those guys. Who, I mean, he wasn't a horrible felon, but he just constantly got in trouble. And so he was struggling with a whole, whole bunch of sins and things in his life. And his whole perspective was, well... I'm going back and I'm doing that, so I've lost my salvation. I go back and start over again. I mean, that is just a terrible way to look at your life. And it also indicates he's not taking seriously in understanding what Christ really did for him. And when he puts his faith in him, what that means. So I, I really spent a lot of time with this guy, and I think it finally sunk in, and he finally understood that your relationship with God is not based on a flippant, frivolous set of teachings. It's based on the Son of God dying for you, the Son of God being resurrected for you, the Son of God ascending to the right hand of the Father, indicating that his work is completed. This is all done for you. Don't retreat this in a frivolous uh, and, and almost foolish manner. If you really believe that, it's settled. Now start acting the way you are in Christ. Start living your position. And I mean, I said that to him 97 different ways. And finally, I think the Holy Spirit of God helped him to understand his position. That's what Paul's appealing to. And if this doesn't make sense to you, you've got to make sure it makes sense to you. Because your position in Christ, your identity in Christ is clearly defined in the Scriptures. And if you don't understand your position, you're never going to grow spiritually. Fred? Well, and that, yeah, the Satan, I mean, it's your enemies, you're protected now. You're in that wonderful sphere of security and protection. And the enemy will have no authority over you unless you give that enemy your authority. Satan has no, no way to touch you unless you allow him to touch you. The world will have no dominion over you unless you allow. And that's the struggle we have when we come to Christ. Because all of those habits and patterns that are in the world, the flesh and the devil, we still struggle with those. But we begin to overcome. We're another way of, of uh, the Apostle John talks about it this way. We're overcomers in Christ. We need to understand that. So Paul's appealing to our position to counsel this. A believer should have an upward look and a forward look. And our forward look, again, is rooted in our identification with him. And so was there... I didn't know if I saw another hand or not. Yeah, okay, John. What, uh, the, the word hidden, hidden in Christ, how, can you elaborate on that a little bit? Are, does that mean you're identified with Christ, you're hidden with him in heaven? Or? Well, not so much in heaven. I mean, the, the, the term is, um, it's really a term actually that comes out of the Psalms. 
the psalmist often talks that way about his relationship with Yahweh, with, with God. And he says, I'm, I'm hidden in the safety of your rock. I mean, that's a metaphor, it's figurative language. But he's, it, it, it's a term that captures, we live in a very dangerous world. A world, and I'm talking about the world that's in rebellion against Christ. And our enemies are out to get us every single day. But you're hidden in Christ. You're protected. Hidden is a metaphor for protection and security. You, you know, it, John will say it, uh, John the Apostle will say it in 1 John 4, he that is in you is greater than he that is in the world. Amen. You shouldn't have fear of that because you're hidden in Christ. So it's a tremendous summary of our safety and our security and our protection and our, what other words can we use there, that that describes this tremendously significant change that has occurred in our life. We were an enemy of God, and our enemy was, our, our being an enemy of God is manifested in all the different things we're appealing to, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But you come to know Christ, you put your faith in him, you're now hidden, and God is going to give you the victory over all of those enemies. It's a safety, protection, security, it's, it's just a one, and again, it, it really, the language comes out of the Psalms. That's where um, the author, that's where Paul's getting this, really. Did I see another? Okay, I thought I saw another hand. All right, may I go on? So, look what he says then. When Christ, who is your life? He could have just said, when Christ appears. But he doesn't say that. When Christ, who is your life? Unpack that for me. Our frame of reference is his life. And we identify with his life. And the Holy Spirit can help match that up as we are dealing with different circumstances. And we might ask, what would Christ do? Okay. Scripture applies here. And um, I think that's, that's a big, those two, two sources. Okay. Christ's life and the, and the biblical truth of it. Okay. Any other thoughts? Also the, the source of our life. What source of what kind of life? Eternal life. Okay. But also, I mean, also our spiritual life, and actually also our physical life. We don't really understand and recognize that until we come to faith. So... It's really a pretty comprehensive modifier. When Christ, who is your life? Your source of physical life, that's what Genesis is all about. Source of my spiritual life, because now I'm walking with him in, by, and with the Spirit. Source of my eternal life. And if that is true, then and this is kind of what Fred was getting at, then that necessitates an understanding of his lordship over our life. So it's, it's like a, the more you think about that, who is our life, the more you say, what are the limits to that? There are almost no limits. There's almost no boundaries to that, that relative clause. Who is your life? I mean, it's like, whoa. So it's, it's a fact 
Jesus is the source of our life, physical, spiritual, eternal. But because that's true, he also has the right to claim lordship over my life. And as I am growing in my walk with him, I'm becoming more and more clear in my understanding of his lordship. Because if he is lord over your life, who's running your life? He is. And that's the rest of the book. That's where Paul's going with us. Because he is the source of, let's do what Joel did, because he's the source of our physical, spiritual, and eternal life, and therefore he has the right to claim lordship over our life, what are the boundaries to that? There are none. And that's what he's going to start explaining in the rest of the book. As I used to say to my students, got it? Any question? You got it? You're back. I fixed my emergency. You're a very mercurial person today. Yes. Oh, okay. There you go. <laughs> but I said God forgives him, but I just, you remember, I'm still a sinner. But anyway, no, welcome back. It's good to have you here. What's that? Yeah, you're repentant. Well, good. And you brought the fruits of your repentance, right? Okay. Which is your appearance. All right, let's get out of this silliness. When Christ, who is your life, okay, we've talked about, appears. That's a very important New Testament word. I mean, when you read it in English, you think, oh, that's not. But that New Testament word is always associated with the return of Jesus for his church. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you will also appear with him in glory. This is referring to the event that's described in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 through 18. What Paul just summarized here in this little end of verse 4 is elaborated upon in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 18. When Jesus appears, he appears in the clouds with the voice of the archangel, with the shout, and with the last trumpet, the dead in Christ shall rise first, and we who are alive, we caught up to, to be with him forever. And so Paul is saying, that's your forward look. So let's make sure we got this for the quiz next week. You have an upward look, and you have a forward look. That defines the life of the believer who's hidden in Christ. That defines the life of the believer whose position is secure in Christ. That's the life of the believer whose identity is very clear to them. I no longer am clinging to the things of this earth which are quickly passing away. I'm clinging to the things that are eternal where my Savior and Lord is, and I'm waiting with great expectancy for his return, for his appearing. That should define your new world view. He's just going through. Jesus is Lord, chapter 1. Absolute, preeminent, sovereign Lord. Chapter 2, all other systems that do not elevate him to that position are false systems. They went through uh, events, system, after system after system in chapter 2. Now chapter 3, back to the Lordship of Jesus Christ. This is the difference that makes in your life. And to summarize that difference is, 
You're now no longer enslaved to this world. You have an upward look where your sovereign Lord reigns, and you have a forward look when he comes back for you. That, in a summary, is the dynamic of the change transformed life. You, you have to raise your hand, Woody, but go ahead. I'm looking forward to today that that is permanently cemented in my heart and my mind. Um, I, I know I've heard others talk about sometimes they have doubts, and, and sometimes when I'm reading this and hearing you share the message, uh, I kind of go back to that song. I can't remember the name of the song, but it's where uh, a wretch like me. It, amazing grace. We, amazing grace. Mm-hmm. We have that doubt at times. We just can't believe that we're so worthy that mm-hmm. he would, you know, feel that way about us mm-hmm. and, and that we would have him in our life. And mm-hmm. Sometimes, and I don't know where that thought comes from unless it's maybe Satan. Well, I, I think it is. I mean, the one, I think the one thing he, Satan, would delight in is undermining your hiddenness. Let's use that word that's used here. Your hiddenness in Christ. Undermine that. And you used a really important word there, doubt. The goal of his deception is to cause you to doubt God's goodness, God's sovereignty. I mean, all of the things that we've been talking about. And that's very effective because you and I live in a broken and fallen world. Doing life is hard. And doing life, there is no exception between the believer and unbeliever in doing life. It's what resources do you have in doing life that you didn't have. Because you now have an upward look, you have a totally different perspective on things. And you have a forward look, which is the substance of your hope. And so... In a fallen, broken world, you're still going to get sick, you're still going to get tired, you're still going to get the flu, and you're still tragically going to be accidents. Still, I mean, all of those things are still going to happen. But you have a totally different set of resources because of who you are in Christ. Amen. And you need to keep remembering that. And that is the reason, I'm going to infer this, but I think it's true, that's one of the reasons you come to a class like this. Because this is not only teaching you truth, it's reminding you of truth. And we constantly need to be reminded of truth. We are little children. We are like little children spiritually. And when you were raising your kids, and there's probably only one person in this room, that, oh no, you have still, you guys have still have kids running around. But when you were raising your kids, did you just have to say to your children one time a truth? If you're telling me that, you're a liar, because that is not true. I mean, you have to just keep saying it over and over and over again, and then these little little rotten kids keep testing it. Is this still true, Dad? Is this still the boundary, Dad? And you know, it is, it is, it is. You know, you're just nauseating. You just have to keep on over this. And so Peggy and I are just sitting back with great delight and watching Jonathan and Irene with our two grandsons. It's the same thing. And Jonathan said, I remember you saying that, Dad. And my, you know, it's just, it's just so wonderful. And then we get to visit them. And then even more, we get to leave. And it's all there. You know? But that's how God deals with us. And that's why the person that chooses to not study, a believer now, who chooses to not study God's word, not be in Bible studies, not go to church, I mean, all the different ways in which you can be nurtured spiritually, 
You're setting yourselves up for the piercing, penetrating darkness of doubt. We all will have doubts. Os Guinness wrote a great book on doubt, and he said, doubt is not our enemy unless we let it be our enemy, because doubt, it's what you do with it. Do you get it resolved through the Word of God, or you get it resolved on your own? And if you get it resolved on your own, it's going to deepen your doubt. You don't resolve your doubt by dwelling and meditating on it. You resolve your doubt by going to the manufacturer's handbook. That's what one of the guys in one of my other Bible studies calls it the Bible. Think Daniel and then Fred. No. Oh, you're just stretching. Feel good? Okay. <laughs> um, how, how do you, uh, what do you recommend as the best way of dealing with this doubt? Um, like, what do you bring this up? And I think it's a common affliction of, of Christians. Uh, and some that are sort of, and, and what is isn't this way? But some that are really on the edge, and they they got like one foot in the world and one foot in the church, and they're trying to straddle it. Um, there's a lukewarm scripture reference uh, that, that's mentioned. Um, what what do you think? I mean, how do you deal with that, Jim? Well, I hesitate to repeat myself, but I don't know I don't know how to respond to it other than. When there are doubts, and, and almost always the object of your doubt is God. You're doubting something about God or doubting something that he said as a promise in the scriptures or whatever. And the only, the only way to resolve that doubt is to get back into God's word. I mean, get back into that which helps to remind you of who your God is. That which helps to remind you of who you are in Christ. I mean, we just constantly be reminded of those things. And there's nothing wrong. I mean, I think sometimes you can say, well, I shouldn't have to be reminded of this. It's all right that you need to be reminded of it. Because you are your frail, fallen human being that's been saved by the grace of God, wretched, you know, that I am quoting from Amazing Grace. But then that it's just my okay, that's what I used to be. Now here's here's where I am. I'm a joint heir with Christ. I'm I'm headed forward to a fantastic future in eternity with him. But for now, I'm learning what dependence and reliance on his grace looks like day in and day out. Constantly being reminded of who am I in Christ? Who is he? Okay, let's bridge the gap. That it's that constant reminder. Is God good? Yes. But my child's very, very sick. God's still good. My, my wife has been diagnosed with a very sincere, very severe disease. God's still good. And you constantly have to remind yourself of that. And the only way to remind yourself is saturate your mind with the word of God. Be with other Christians. Find ways in which you can be encouraged and nurtured and affirmed into the faith. That's, if you try to do it on your own as a Lone Ranger... I'm not saying you can't, but I think it's going to be much more difficult. I mean, all of those things are hard, but that's just... And then sometimes, I mean, I'm, I'm not going maybe a little beyond your question, but sometimes even it's recognizing, you know, I really need some help here. And sit down with the pastor. Pastoral counseling type situation. Or even, if it is even a little more serious, maybe a Christian therapist. 
But we live in an age, uh, and by I mean just at the time we live in, in 2019, we live at a time when there are there's tremendous resources that we can access. I mean, tremendous resources that 100 years ago were not available to the to Christian. But it's knowing and, and, and admitting and acknowledging, I need other people. I need God's word. I need the encouragement that comes from going to church. I need the encouragement of praying with other people. All of those things. The Lone Ranger approach to doubt will not work. Okay. Glenn, are you posing a question, or are you just resting your hand on your chin? Well, that's also a real need for accountability partnership. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Oh. Because it may not come up in a small group. It may not come up within corporate worship. But that accountability partner, really, that's huge. And I think it is. And in the kinds of things that can develop um, in your walk with the Lord that just help you to see and to be reminded, I do need sometimes to be accountable to others. Sometimes we can't talk it out. Yeah, yeah. That's one yeah. Talk about doubt. Else. Yeah. I know I've distributed, but it's been a number of years, uh, a couple of years since I did it, but I've done it. A couple, I used to use this with the men I discipled at, at, and mentored at Grace. Uh, it, it was a shift, a, a, list, a, a sheet with lists of questions on it that you should be able to ask one another. Do you remember that sheet? Yeah, there were three parts to it. Uh, one part was a series of questions Chuck Swindoll always asks. Another was from a little book by Randy Alcorn, and another one was a series of discipleship questions from Discipleship Journal. I put all those, I cut and pasted it all together. But those are the kinds of things that also deal with what the accountability situation that can help resolve some of the natural doubts we experience in life. And as you get older, I mean, if you walk with the Lord a long time, as you chronologically get older, the, the nature of those doubts can change because there are different things now going on in your life. You're getting older. You're not able to do the things you used to be able to do to the same energy levels you used to do, and you start to get to the point where you feel sorry for yourself. I know that you don't have any idea even what I'm talking about, but that's <laughs> kind of what happens. And so, I mean, it's just, it's just doing life. The difference between you as a believer and a non-believer doing life is an enormous difference, an enormous difference. And how um, we can learn and to admit and not feel guilty or feel bad about wanting to resolve our doubts, it's okay to do that. Some of the great Great leaders of the church have struggled with depression. Let me list a couple of them. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, John Wesley, D.L. Moody. They all struggled with depression. And because just because you struggle with some of the things that are part of life doesn't mean that you've lost it. You're still hidden in Christ. How do you deal with those things? Incidentally, how is it that you, you don't realize that you're discipling us? Oh, well, I'm very aware that I'm discipling you. Amen. <laughs> yeah, I'm very aware of that. All right, can I move on? Yes. Now, that's the summary of the first four verses, and you're never going to forget this until Jesus comes. <laughs> <laughs>
I'm going to be standing at the pearly gates, and I'm not going to let you in unless you can say that. <laughs> that is not true. Don't believe that at all. It's a lie. What he's doing here, and what I wrote up here, not that's not Paul, that's me. What he's doing here, I, want, I, I like to suggest that you use this phrase to capture this. Paul is laying out now, because of who you are, in Christ and who Christ is in you and because of your upward look and forward look you now should develop a strategy for holiness because a strategy for holiness in your life is on your shoulders God knows what he wants to do in your life and 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 so we're now we're shifting from justification to sanctification so in sanctification, we're activists. I hope you understand what I mean by that. We're activists. We're not passive. We don't sit, okay, I've got my salvation now. I'm secure in Christ. Now I'll just sit in my rocking chair and rock till I get to heaven. No, that is not the right way to think about it. And so you have these very, very strong imperatives here. An imperative is a command. Very strong imperatives. First, is you put to death. John Owen, the great Puritan of the 1600s, used to say, you mortify these things. Well, who, the last time you heard mortify using a sentence, no one talks like that. But I love that word, mortify. Mortify means put to death. And then he starts to say, what? But you note something, though, I read from the ESV translation, put to death, therefore. What's another way of saying that? Because of the truth of verses 1 through 4. Because 1 through 4 is true. Because 1 through 4 defines you, your relationship with God, your upward look and your forward look. Because of those truths, therefore, mortify, put to death what is earthly in you. Now, what's he, where's he getting that? He's getting that from verse 1. He's getting that from the end of verse 2. The temporal, finite perspective on things. The temporal, finite perspective on things that leads to bondage. Put those things to death. Let's put it another way. Put to death the things that used to characterize your life. Put to death what used to characterize your old identity. Put to death the things that were a part of your old identity that now contradict your new identity. Put to death the things that used to be a part of your old identity that potentially are lethal to your new identity. Because God wants you to grow out of those things. So, Put to death. What does that mean? Okay, I've four people are saying something. It sounds like you're all speaking in tongues. So I've got to hear you say <laughs> one person. I don't know who started. Fred, did you say something? Fred, did you say something? I said cast away the old. Okay, so wait. John, squash. Oh, that's good. Squash. Put it behind you. Put it behind you? That's too weak. No, I'm just kidding. I'm being hard on you. No. Yeah, I mean, it's... 
If you put something to death, it has no life anymore. Boy, there's a great profound sentence, isn't it? But if you put it to death, it means it absolutely has no authority. It absolutely has no meaning to you whatsoever. It no longer characterizes because you're a new person in Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.17. So so what is it, these, these things that are earthly in you? These things that are characterized by the earthiness. <laughs> you're not thinking eternally. You're not, uh, well, not, not really that, but the upward. And he just, it's probably correct to say these are not comprehensive. But these are items that are perhaps somewhat characteristic. The unique things are going to Colossae, I don't know. But they're none, none of these things are foreign to you. Sexual immorality. And by the way, uh, um, well, I don't want to use more paper than I should. I'm really interested in preserving trees. So, the term for sexual immorality is porneia. Now, I don't normally write out the Greek words and so on, but I do here because I want you to understand, when Paul chooses that term, that ESV translates as sexual immorality, that is a very, very broad term. When the Greeks used the term porneia, they included, it's an enormous list of things that have been included in that. And so it's like an all-encompassing, it's an all-encompassing term that captures adultery, premarital sex, bestiality, sex with animals, homosexuality, um, bisexuality. I mean, all the things that violate the creation ordinance of God when it comes to sexuality is included in that term. It is an all-encompassing term. So he's talking about, using that term, a very broad understanding of the gift that God has given to us as human beings, the gift of sexuality. It's part of what it means to be human. But a creator has said, what about that beautiful gift? The boundary is marriage. The boundary is between a husband and a wife. And if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, the first 11 verses, Paul there, Paul is answering a question that the Corinthians ask him, but Paul lays out three principles for sexuality in marriage. And if you look very carefully at those verses, every principle he does, and there are three of them, he says for the husband and for the wife. It is not just for the husband. It is for the wife. And so you have this, it's, it's really a remarkable passage of Scripture. But they're the boundaries. God has said let me be a little facetious, but I just want to ask did God create sexuality? Yes, he did. And when a husband and a wife are enjoying the beauty of romantic love, does the Holy Spirit leave the room? No. He's celebrating the beauty of what he created. And I say holy because he indwells two believers. And so God... God is, God is not saying, don't enjoy this. I created it, for goodness sakes. 
I created it for you. It's a fulfilling dimension of the romantic expressions of love between a husband and wife. But I'm telling you, he says, and it's in one of the Ten Commandments, it's one of his principles, if you go outside those principles, if you go outside those boundaries, there are repercussions in your life, in the life of your family, if you have children and it's in marriage and life of your children, it's going to affect your society. It's going to affect everyone. Do you see any evidence of that? God has created us in such a way that the sexual dimension of what it means to be a human being is a very powerful, it's a very powerful force in our life. But God says... Here's the boundaries. Because I created you, I created this institution, and I created this institution, it's the boundaries. And I am telling you, it will be beautiful and fulfilling and wonderful. When I do my premarital counseling, I always tell the the, the folks, they must buy three books, and one of the books is Ed Wheat's great, great book. He's a medical doctor. It's called Intended for Pleasure. He's He's a Christian doctor. But he walks everyone through who reads the book through every dimension of the sexual dimension of life. Chapters on the physical difference between a man and a woman, the physical difference of all aspects of what it means to be a man and a woman, and the, the difference psychologically, emotionally between a man and a woman, left brain, right brain, all that. And he says for you, to, for you to be able to maximize what God has created, you've got to understand each other. You have to understand how God made you. And then, then, he, then he works in the beautiful scriptural truth about this. And if you choose to violate this, you choose to bear the burdens of the consequences of this. Is it unforgivable? No, it's not unforgivable. And so it's, it, it, it just, it really, it frustrates me to some extent why we're not really, really driving this home with young people with young adults and doing intensive, intensive premarital counseling and just helping people work through this dimension of their life. Because this is not, it's driven, it's driven, and the man's drive is almost overwhelming at times, but so can the wives at the point. And so Peggy and I used to do premarital or I mean, excuse me, marriage seminars. We, we did lots of those. Uh, and we always ended with a, a very intense focus on the intimacy of marriage and so on. And then we'd have, a, we'd have a sweetheart banquet. And my wife came up with the favors. You know what a favor is. I never knew what that meant until Peggy explained it to me. But it'd be a little white doily sitting right next to the coffee cup. It was a piece of charcoal and a match. The match is the man. The charcoal is the wife. And we've had many, many people over the years, I'll never forget the match and the charcoal. Because that is exactly the difference between a man and a woman. The man is quickly aroused. And the flame is ignited and it's over. Whereas the wife, that charcoal has to get heated. And she would always say, and there's always enough left over to roast some marshmallows. <laughs> you have to think about that, but 
In other words, and the man has to understand that about his wife. If you don't understand how God made your wife, and you don't understand the difference between her orgasm and your orgasm, you are never going to have a wife that is enjoying the maximum of what God created. And so it's that, it's that kind of, you know, I'm, I'm going way beyond this, but it's to put to death that, I would say, a strategy for holiness within marriage, you better make sure you understand all this. Because if you don't understand all this, because that is definitely a, that's another principle Paul develops in 1 Corinthians 7, you'll start to think that the grass is greener on the other side of the fence. You understand that figure of speech, don't you? And it's not. And, I mean, it's just it's so powerful. So put to death this, that's why I think it's listed first in this list. This is a powerful drive in a human being. But you've got to put to death that which is outside the boundaries of what your creator has set for life. Impurity is another very, very, very broad term. It has a lot to do not so much with the sexual dimension, but all of the things that relate to false holiness. Passion, that it can be trans- uh, hupomathia, uh, it can mean lust, but the, the lust, not just sexual, but the lust, the desire for things that take you away from what is really important to God, the earthly things. Evil desire. And then covetousness, which is idolatry. Covetousness, which is idolatry. As you might remember, covetousness is the Tenth Commandment. Do not covet. Paul's adding a dimension to that. Covetousness is idolatry. What in the world does that mean? Let's define. First of all, let's. What is? If you're going to, let's make it a verb. To covet. What does that mean? To want. Yeah, covet. To want. Want what? Something you don't have. Something that does not. Something that God has not given you to steward. Your house, your car, clothing, your wife. Because you can covet someone's house, you can covet someone's car, you can covet someone's wife. When you go back to the Old Testament, there's some of the things to talk about. And so, to cut, Paul says, covetousness is idolatry. What does he mean by that? Well, I think he's talking about, like, you could want money, or more money, and then that's your idolatry, you know? I think. Okay, so if he's saying it's idolatry, this, what is it replacing in your life? The place God should have. So that covetousness, that covetous desire for that house or that bank account or that car or just anything you want that you can think of that's earthly, because that's how he described it at the beginning of verse 5, it takes place. And it becomes, listen, how many, how many people end up in prison because it starts with the covetousness. You want something that's not yours. And we put it ahead of something else that should probably have some attention paid. 
equate to it, you know. Uh, it was a time in my life when I was an active realtor, and I, I knew I had no boundaries on that. I'd be working night and day, and after that buck, you know. Yeah. And, and the family probably missed out on some stuff there because of that. Exactly. I gave up holidays sometimes to yeah. do something. Yeah. And that is not an unusual thing. That characterizes a person's life. And to want something to where it leads you to do it, because covetousness leads, well, let me rephrase that. To covet can lead to stealing. Can covet can lead to murdering. I mean, that's an extreme, but it can. To covet can lead to lack of integrity. I want that promotion. I want that major executive position in the firm. And I'm going to cut corners and I'm going to be duplicit because I'll get that. And you know what the Bible says? You get what you covet and you find out it doesn't satisfy. So then you have a choice. I want more. Because this didn't satisfy. But that will satisfy. And so you do that and you get that and you find it doesn't satisfy. Augustine, the great theologian of the 400s, said, O God, our soul never finds rest until it rests in you. That's the answer. We're seeking for what only God can provide. Covetousness is idolatry because it prevents you from finding fulfillment in God. Only God brings rest to the soul, to use Augustine's statement. And that's something I think we have to learn that. We have to learn that because if you're driven and you're goal-oriented and you're performance-oriented and there's not necessarily anything wrong with that necessarily as long as it's under the control of the Lord, but you can quickly fall into that. My main purpose in life is to, and just fill in the blank, earn lots of money, get lots of prestige, etc., whatever it is. And you get that and you find, whoa, I thought I'd feel better about this. I thought I'd finally feel fulfilled about this. And you just, you, you realize you don't. I love, that's why I love Augustine's statement. Oh Lord, we never find rest until we rest in you. That is the only, only, and covetousness keeps you from that. That's why Paul calls it idolatry. It is the most subtle, but also the most destructive Emotion there is. Because it so much fits into that. I want something I don't now have. And when I get it, I'll be satisfied. You get it, and you're not satisfied. All right. This is getting too convicting. Let's move on. Verse 8. Strike that. Verse 6. On account of these, what he's just quickly reviewed, the wrath of God is coming. That's day of the Lord language out of the Old Testament. What does that mean? The wrath of God is coming. What does he mean by that? Justice. On account of these things. Justice. Justice. 
justice, justice of God. But is he referring to something there? Is he alluding to something there? The list that he just listed. Yeah, but when he says the wrath of, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Is he referring to something specific? Fred? He's referring to the same wrath that he had that he has towards sin that we are saved from right. Christ. And that wrath is going to be put on people who have not believed in Christ. Yep. What's the event called? Correction. No, it's an event. The great white throne judgment. It's referring to a very specific... That's why the language here, and I don't... I, I, if you don't understand what I mean, it's all right. But he's using here day of the Lord language out of the Old Testament. Book of Amos, book of Joel, book of Zephaniah. He's using day of the Lord language. That there's coming a day when God is going to break into space-time history and he is going to say, my age of grace is now over. And I'm going to call everybody to account that has rejected my grace. I poured my wrath out on my son so I do not have to judge you. But if you refuse that gift, my justice demands that you. And so that, that he's saying the wrath of God is coming. There's coming a day when God is going to settle accounts. This is an ugly thing. That, who wants to talk about that? But that is exactly, it's just all over the Bible. It's all over the Old Testament. It's all over. Jesus spent more time talking about judgment than he did heaven. I mean, you go back and check that. He spent more time talking about this than he did about heaven. And so it's just, you must understand this. But, but Paul's saying, but that's not your position anymore. That's what you used to be. But now, notice that in verse 7. In these you too once walked. Past tense. That's what you used to be when you were living in them. What are the first two words of verse 8? But now. But now. That used to characterize you. But now. You must put them all away. See, now from mortify, <laughs> put to death, to you put them away. And the language here, if I, I'm not going to do it, but if I were to stand up and take off my jacket, that's the language he's using here. Put them all away. So what does that mean? It's intentional. You're desiring to do it, and you're carrying it out. God is not saying, I'm going to put them away. He's saying, you put them away. Now, that doesn't mean he's not going to help us. The power of the Holy Spirit, all the wonderful things we've studied many, many, many times. But you must want that. You must desire to do this. And so what does he say? And so now he has another nice list for us to feel bad about. But to also understand this no longer characterizes us. What is it? Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk with your mouth. Oh, because anger, wrath, malice, slander, they're the inner emotions. They're the inner things in our gut that only we know what's going on in there. God knows it. But it's those things, the anger and the wrath, the malice and slander, that lead to the acts of, of hurling insults at somebody or hurting somebody. 
or murdering somebody. Because it's these inner things. But then he makes us really uncomfortable. Because he goes from the inner stuff that only God knows about to the obscene talk from your mouth. What we say. The words that we use. You know, the Bible has more to say about what comes out of our mouth than any other specific things we do. In the little epistle of James, which we studied several years ago, you might remember there are two chapters devoted to that, what you say. Well, this is too convicting, so I'm just going to move on. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self. Verse 10, put on the new self. What you should do in your Bible is circle, I don't know how they translate, what translations we all have here might be a little different, but old self and new self and draw an arrow between them. That's what you used to be. But your new self. I like to, I like to, it, it doesn't, it sort of can fit with that Greek term, but old self, that's my old identity. New self, that's my new identity. I'm starting to live, uh, in, in verse 10, I'm starting to live according to the standards of my new identity. Because up until the point that I trusted Christ, I was living by the standards of my old identity. And I don't want to do What's the old identity? Look at verse 5, look at verse 6, look at verse 7. That's my old identity. I may not have done all of those things, but they are characteristic of my old identity. And I have a new identity. New self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. This verse, listen, this is a very important sentence. This verse establishes the goal of sanctification. What is it? To become like Jesus. The image, the Greek word is icon, the image of my creator. Okay, let's, let's ask the question another way. What's the Heavenly Father's goal for you as his child? To become like your big brother. Can I put it that way? To become like your big brother. To become like Jesus. And, and that is not, that, that's not blasphemous because that's how the Apostle Paul talks about it in, in, his, in Galatians. That's, a, that's how he's talking about it. Here's your position. Here's who you are. And the Father, in Galatians 4.19, I think it is, the Father is conforming you to the image of his Son. And you, so now he's, this little passage he's, he's, is, a, is a, a tremendous encouragement to us. God is at work in our life, conforming us to the image of his son, of our creator. We're taking on the image of our big brother. Where would be a nice place to get a little handle on that? Maybe the fruit of the Spirit. Those nine quality traits. Love, joy, peace, patience, all that stuff. And you're just now you're starting to, oh, I'm starting to get a handle on this. This isn't just abstract spiritual uh, happy talk. This is real spiritual truth 
grounded in our position. This is what the Father's doing. And you have got to mortify that old crap in your life, put it off, sorry that I use, but I want to use that strong word because that's really what it is, and put on the new. Here's your identity, and start living that way. Hence, there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised, non-circumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave-free, but Christ is all and in all. The ethnic and racial and gender and social divisions of humanity are meaningless at the cross of Christ. There's pure, total equality at the cross. Christ is all, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and in all. He's the binding glue of the new covenant. He's the binding glue which defines the equality of the new covenant. He's the binding glue that breaks down all that the Tower of Babel created. He's the binding glue of the new order of things. Got it? Yes, sir. So this is where I struggle because when you read this, you may not be able to earn your way to heaven because we're all in person. You cannot earn your way to heaven. You can't. Absolutely. You got it. But behavior still counts. Mm -hmm. If if your heart is not in Christ, if if, if he's truly your God, if he's not truly your God, you're going to stumble. And the question in my mind is, wait, you stumble like this. And I think there's some behaviors that indicate that your heart is not with God. Your heart is does not put God first. Absolutely. Absolutely. That, and, and, and I think to really want to do what God wants you to do, you have to read the Bible to find out what it is he wants. Absolutely. That's right. And in That's right. verse 10, it says, renewed in knowledge of God. To indicate that we're supposed to be learning about That's right. That's right. And I mean, Rob, what you're saying is, is accurate, but let me quick, because I'm out of time here, but quickly, um, that we will struggle and that we will fall is a given in our walk with the Lord. But it's what we do when that happens. Because this this is very, and this, our, our enemy is very, very, very shrewd in this area. If he can get the child of God to assume that because they're struggling, they're not a child of God, he's got you. The Bible is saying because you struggle is evidence you are a child of God. Because you have a new position, a whole new identity, and you're still struggling with the old in the in light of who you are now. And that you are struggling, and that you're feeling uh, uneasy and guilty about it, is evidence that you're a child of God. So, as Paul will say, what is the solution? You fall and you stumble, pick yourself up, put your hand back in the hand of Jesus Christ, and go on. Amen. Don't, you know... 
The belief, Paul says this in Philippians, yeah. I do not look back. I look forward to the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus my Lord. So many believers are headed each day into the future with their eye in the rearview mirror, looking at their past life and their foot on the brake. I don't want to go forward. And Jesus is saying, yes, you do. Get your eye off that rearview mirror. As a matter of fact, let me take the rearview mirror out of your life. Well, you can't do that. You'll violate the laws of the United States. So you have, this is supposed to be a joke to release the tension. But, I mean, it's that, it's that, that you're going to fall and stumble as a given. But right. what are you going to do with it? What do I do? So is the pillar of salt in the Old Testament is that conveying the same message? Well, it's it's sort of uh, because of you know Lot's wife. She was not to look back because God was rescuing her from that. Because in looking back, she said, I don't want to leave it. I don't want to leave this. Yes, you do. You don't want to look back. And that, for me, that was one of the greatest battles I had. It was almost five years from 1972 to 1977. It was that struggle of going back, going back, going back, going back, and keep looking back. Oh, how bad, how evil, awful. To be saved by grace and really understand that is the most liberating, liberating thing you can possibly come to terms with. But it, you understand what's happened, when you put, but you still have all the past stuff you're dealing with. But God gives you the that wonderful phrase that John uses, we're overcomers. We're overcomers in Christ. We're not defeated people. We're not defeated people. You understand Amen. that, don't you? We're not defeated people. Amen. Thank you. Let's pray. Victors in Christ. What's that? Victors in Christ. Absolutely. Lord, we've done a lot this morning. We've dealt with tremendous truths of Scripture. What Paul is summarizing in these few verses we've studied are the central teachings of the scriptures. We're to have an upward look and a forward look. Uh, That was true in ancient Israel. Moses was to have an upward look, keeping his eyes on the God who had made him deliver, and a forward look. They're going into the promised land. King David is to have an upward look because of the triumphal nature of God who had vanquished all the enemies of Israel. But we also can stumble when we take our eyes off of you. But that is part of our fallenness and our brokenness. And the key text of Scripture is to mortify the old things of our life, what used to characterize us, and put on the new things. Another way of putting it, we're learning what it means to live our new identity in Christ. And that takes a long time. We have to understand that. Sometimes it can take years. But we are overcomers. The bondage to the old has been broken. We're now free in Christ, and we have to sometimes learn the dimensions of that freedom, and sometimes it's a daily thing. Thank you for your your patience with us, Lord. One of the terms that's used, you're long-suffering. You hang in there with us. You never give up on us. You never turn your back on us. You said, Jesus, I'm with you always. I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. We need to hang on to those promises as well. So, Lord, we're going to go our separate ways now. Take care of us. Watch over us. We we ask for your special grace and enablement each hour, each day, each week, each month that we live. But most importantly, may we represent you well in our deeds and in our thoughts, in our actions and what we say. And we ask this in the same Son. Amen. Amen.